Welcome back to Creative Talks Commercial Real Estate Podcast. In today's episode, I invited Andrew Shumo, Real Estate Development and Asset Manager for the City of Miami. He shared with us his entrepreneur story of founding a student housing development company called Mantra. We talked about defining your market, knowing your audience, preparing presentations, and getting to the decision makers in an organization. After he sold his interest in the company, he accepted a role at the city of Miami and became the real estate development manager for the municipality. He shared with us some of the useful principles when starting up a business in commercial real estate and dealing with public entities in a commercial real estate context. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not intended to be an investment nor legal advice. Views and opinions expressed are those of the presenters only and do not reflect the views of the employers. Now let's get started. Thank you so much, Andrew, for being the guest on Creative Talks Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I know you have been our listener for a while and have been engaging with all of our LinkedIn and social media content. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So why don't we start with a quick self-intro of your background and your company, and then we can dive into today's talking points. Sure. So I am the real estate development manager for the city of Miami. And um, that role is all-encompassing from uh, acquisitions to development to dispositions. But before I came to the city of Miami, I actually started up my own real estate development company called Mantra. And um, that was a great experience. We started up the company, we grew it, and then I sold my interest in the company about five years ago, and that led me to the city. And before I started up Mantra, I was actually a uh, practicing attorney where I focused in construction defects and construction litigation. So I ran the gamut between practicing law to real estate development to public service, but all within that commercial real estate or construction umbrella. So it, it's, a, it's been a wild ride, to say the least. Yes. And I remember I posted something on LinkedIn two weeks ago about creative media, how I started my business as well. And then you commented and say you have lots of business tips and advice that you would like to share with, especially young entrepreneurs in commercial real estate. So why don't we start with this talking point and what are some of the tips and advice you have for entrepreneurs in commercial real estate? Um, So the first thing, I guess, let's start off by saying all these anecdotes and advice and whatever, it's within the context of my startup, which was focused in um, developing student housing for colleges and universities, but primarily on campus. So we were dealing uh, always with uh, public universities, uh, presidents, board of governors, you know, that sort of umbrella. And the first thing, so I went from, practicing law and sitting behind a desk all day, writing briefs, going to court, to then starting up a business. And there's no playbook for that. And we had to figure it out as we went along. And when I say we, my brother was my partner with this. He had a CPA and financial background. 
And the first thing we did was we narrowed the parameters of the market that we were going to target. So colleges and universities in the United States, I mean, you have the mega universities, like the 50,000 full-time enrollment of students down to smaller universities with a thousand. And we felt that in order to compete, we had to not target everybody, but target the ones that we felt we could have the most success with. So being based in Miami, first, we wanted to be within a two or three hour plane trip to those universities. So we just said, okay, everything east of the Mississippi is on the table. And then we narrowed it down even more where we said, okay, universities between two and 5,000 students on the low end and up to about 10 or 12,000 students on the top end. That's going to be our core. And the reason why we did that is because the larger student housing developers, they were always targeting the larger universities because the larger universities needed to develop more beds in one shot. And we felt as a startup, we couldn't compete with that initially. So we needed to make a name for ourselves targeting the smaller universities that the larger players weren't focusing on. So one of the first things we did, like I said, we narrowed the scope down by saying, okay, within one plane trip, two to three hours, you know, we could focus on our clients and then narrowing the scope even more to two to 5,000 up to 10 or Mm 12,000. And that made everything a little bit more manageable when you're starting out and you don't have this wide array of potential clients and not really knowing where to start. So that helped things a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I really agree with you because after I studied in New York and got my master's, I always wanted to come back to Vegas because right. first of all, I love the city. And number two is because I think in the commercial real estate big umbrella, I think every professional should have a niche that they focus on, whether it's an asset type or a geographic location or somewhere within the capital stack that they are specialized in. After I graduated, I wanted to become the commercial real estate local expert of Las Vegas. That is my niche and that links very well within my personal brand as well. So same thing for business. You do want to identify a niche. Yep. Right. And I think that goes to the point. You always want to establish yourself as the expert in your arena. There's that saying, jack of all trades, master of nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So find your target market, focus on that, and really become a master of it. And believe it or not, over time, your target clients will begin to hear about you from the work that you're doing, because they all talk to each other, the, the different universities or you know, different potential clients that you may have, and your name will get out there. And if you're doing quality work, people will know about it. So it's better, I think, to focus on a few clients that you can master your abilities with than to try and focus on everybody and spread yourself thin. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned about competition, like the larger developers focus on larger universities. And how did you do your competitive analysis for your company? And what are some of the competitive advantage that Matra had? So what we did was we found that within the on-campus student housing market, the large players like your American campus communities, Capstone, EDR, they use tax-exempt financing 
to develop these residence halls. And my brother coming from the investment banking, finance world, he had to explain to me why that wasn't efficient when developing on-campus student housing because just all the third-party costs involved with it, restrictive covenants, which restricts the university from developing more housing in the future. And our niche was we were going to use private equity and private placements to develop on-campus housing. We found that the cost of capital was nearly identical. You know, private placements, private equity was a little bit more expensive. But when you looked at the big picture, it was really an advantage. And so that was the first step. The second step was what we saw or how we did our competitive analysis was we use public record requests and, you know, FOIA requests. And I guess that's where my background as an attorney came into play. When we came up with this idea and not knowing where to start, a big help was requesting proposals from these competitors, requesting selection committee recordings when they evaluate the proposals and listening to how the clients think and how the competitors frame their arguments. I studied that ad nauseum and I said, okay, I understand what their messaging is and I know that we can do better and here's how we're going to do better. And it's just a matter of systematically laying out your pitch or your argument in that respect. But to go back to your initial point, I would say use public record requests, use Freedom of Information Act requests. You know, if your competitors are dealing with public entities, I mean, all that information is open to the public and it behooves you to know what your competition is doing because you want to be better than them. And they're essentially giving you their playbook of Mm. what they do and how they do it. So use that to your advantage. Mm-hmm. And I also noticed that you mentioned your brother a lot. So when you first started out, I think it's also important to have people who helped you in the areas that you're not specialized in. So do you want to talk a little bit about like forming a team together, finding partnerships, or how do you find talents to help you? Yeah, I think having a partner, especially when it comes to commercial real estate, it's almost essential because I know your background is in finance and, you know, with the spreadsheets and everything. And that's very similar to my brother. And he has a certain way of thinking about things where everything has to be like definite. And I always used to say, you're like a laser guided bomb. Like it has to be like right here. Whereas with the legal background, you know, just give me parameters and I can operate within this. So we were kind of like a yin and yang. And it it worked well together. But within commercial real estate, because there are so many disciplines that one needs to be aware of in order to be successful, whether it's construction, finance, architectural and design, just general development with like site acquisition and evaluating entitlements and knowing what you can develop and how you can develop it, it's really difficult for one person to do all of that and do all of it successfully. Mm -hmm. So I would say find somebody who you enjoy being with for long periods of time, because putting together proposals, putting together pitches, looking at properties, you're either in the car with that person, traveling on a plane with that person, 
you know, always talking to that person constantly mm-hmm. um, with the constant texts and emails and everything. But starting up your own business, I mean, make no mistake about it. It's a 24-7 endeavor. If you want it to be successful, you, you have to put in that time. And having a partner, whether it's a business partner or your significant other, having them support you and be on board 100%. It just makes the effort, I think, more likely to succeed, Mm -hmm. but also more enjoyable because if you have the passion to do this, you're going to succeed. It's just a matter of time and going about things, I think, intelligently. But if you have the passion for something, it's only a matter of time before you start to hit that success. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what are some of your tips of approaching to potential clients or giving them your pitch about the project or idea, especially when you have to reach out to like the president of the university? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure with your social media endeavors, like you're probably running into some of the same situations, like who do I call? How do I get in? Et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there isn't a scientific method to go about this. It's really an art and there's a lot of trial and error that goes along with it. So what I found worked best for us within that student housing development context, and again, putting this within a a further refined context that I'm not an extrovert. I'm not, you know, the life of the party where I'm going up and I'm just talking to everybody doing these things. It's, it's difficult for me. And it was very difficult at the time until I did it enough to feel comfortable with it. And so I read a book and I emailed you the name of it called getting to veto Mm -hmm. veto being an acronym for a very important top officer. And they put into context, you know, how you can divide up an organization from gatekeepers, Mm -hmm. to influencers, to decision makers. And you have to learn, A, what your pitch is, and be able to articulate it well and quickly if you're calling up on the phone or meeting somebody. But you also have to learn who you're talking to. So if it's a gatekeeper, their job is to prevent these cold calls from going through to the decision maker. Mm -hmm. And so with us, I would start off and I would say, hi, this is Andrew from Mantra. We're a private equity firm and we do real estate development. And we'd really like to work with your university as such and such president there, blah, blah, blah. And it it went nowhere. Mm -hmm. It went nowhere. So quickly, you have to be able to refine that. And I got to the point where I could refine it. And when I started to focus on key words that people would latch on to, I would get patched through to the president almost immediately. So I'd call up and I'd say, hey, this is Andrew Schimmel from Mantra. I represent a private equity firm and we'd really like to make a large investment. And your university is president so-and-so available. And inevitably, they would patch me through because they heard the word large investment in the university. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a matter of starting out with a pitch, trying it out, going back, refining it, and just being cognizant of who you're talking to. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And any tips on making the presentation, the pitching portion? Yeah. So with making the presentations, and I think this goes with any industry, whether you're pitching somebody with regards to like social media or an architect is pitching somebody with a design, you really need to know who your audience is. So that goes back to, you know, is this person a decision maker? Is it an influencer, et cetera, et cetera. But then break it down one step further. Is the person I'm talking to the CFO of the organization? Are they the chief marketing officer of the organization? Is it the president of the organization? Because they're all going to process the information differently. Mm -hmm. So when you're making a pitch, if you can learn who you're going to be talking to beforehand, Mm -hmm. I think that's a huge help because then you know going into it, okay, if you're talking to the CFO, let's say, I'm going to make sure to explain how this financially benefits the institution or how this is going to create more revenue or something like that. Mm -hmm. So definitely find out who you're speaking to and find out how they process information. And so quick anecdote, I, I remember when we spoke a few weeks ago, I told you about our first presentation to USF Polytech. And just quick background, USF Polytech was a satellite campus of University of South Florida. And the university was literally a greenfield back in like 2008, 2009. And they went through this procurement process to bring in an architect to master plan the university and then design their signature building. So they went ahead and they went through the procurement process. They interviewed a bunch of different architects and they posted those videos online. One of the respondents was Santiago Calatrava. So simultaneous with that procurement, they also issued an RFP for innovative financial solutions to develop student housing. And we got shortlisted for that. And so as I'm sitting there with my brother we're putting together this presentation and I'm thinking, how can we make a presentation about finance interesting? You know, because we could sit there with an Excel spreadsheet on the screen and just explain how cell X plus cell Y, blah, blah, blah. But luckily they had those videos of the architects online. So we watched them because the selection committee for that was also going to be our selection committee. And Calatrava was going against national large architectural firms who all did a good job. They had their storyboards, they had the PowerPoint, the designs looked great. And by all accounts, it was a good presentation. It kind of lacked emotion, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So when Calatrava presented, he just went up there with an overhead projector, a stack of paper, and some paintbrushes and watercolors. And he was just riffing. He was just like, you know, I got this idea. And he would literally paint it out. And he'd cast the paper aside and say, but, you know, we could do something else. And he'd paint something else and cast that aside. And it went on for like an hour, an hour and a half of him just coming up with ideas and painting them out. And what we saw when we were watching that video is that the selection committee they started like leaning forward. I mean, they were totally engaged. Mm -hmm. So we said, okay, how can we make a presentation about finance Mm -hmm. 
and hit on the same emotional notes that like Calatrava hit on. And what we came up with was, and one of the issues that we uncovered is that the university couldn't afford everything that they were asking for. Mm -hmm. So we went up there and we explained how they couldn't afford it. But then we went up there with two overhead projectors. We turned them both on and we had dual spreadsheets going. And we literally had a kit of parts for a residence hall. And there was also a wellness center component to it like gyms and classrooms and we had the square footages of these components broken down along with prices and so we were showing like okay with this many students and we started moving things over you know here's what you can afford and it was in real time building their university and they saw like okay we have this many students paying this rate and this can buy us this amount and it hit on the same notes and they totally, they totally ate it up. Mm-hmm. They were totally engaged. And the funny thing is in the middle of this, one of their cell phones rang and they excused themselves and went out of the room. Mm-hmm. Somebody else was like, okay, well, while he's out of the room, you know, can I just talk to you about this on your spreadsheet? And they went over to like the corner of the room and they were talking to my brother about the spreadsheet. And I'm standing there like in the middle of the room, like, okay, what do I do? This is totally devolved like this is going horribly the long story short is we won that we won that solicitation and um it was a great experience you know getting to work alongside calatrava working with that administration who were complete innovators so to go back to your initial point like when putting together a presentation try to learn who your audience is and do as much due diligence as you can to find out what their backgrounds are and really try to focus your pitch or your presentation to hit on those points, whether it's finance or marketing, et cetera. Yeah, that's a great story. And that reminds me of something I posted on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago about one thing I wish I've got trained more on is storytelling. I got trained doing spreadsheets, underwritings, but if you think about it in commercial real estate, it doesn't matter which area you focus on, whether it's development, investment, private equity, architecture, Mm -hmm. construction. At the end of the day, you have to do a presentation to either sell a product, a service, an idea, or a story. Yeah, I totally agree. Like I said, you know, naturally I'm introverted. And when I was in law school, I, I focused on litigation and trial advocacy, and I took a lot of classes where they were taught by judges, and the judges would take us into the courtroom, and they would make us stand on the far side of the courtroom, the very back of the courtroom, and they'd put somebody in the witness box at the front end of the courtroom, and they'd have us practice speaking loudly, not yelling, but like speaking loudly and doing that and repeating that. I mean, that's great practice. Also, what they taught us was when you're asking questions or when you're speaking publicly, if you think you're speaking too slow, then it's the right speed. Because Mm -hmm. I think naturally we have a tendency when we're doing public speaking to just speed up and and talk really fast and blah, 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 blah. blah. But if we speak slowly and calmly and 
we enunciate certain points, I think innately the audience, they they key in on this and they Mm -hmm. tend to listen better. Mm -hmm. And I guess one other point is when you're putting together a presentation, I think it's great. And this is something I did. I would have it completed at least a week in advance of the presentation. And I would literally go through the presentation, speaking out the parts Mm -hmm. out loud, because again, with the presentations and with storytelling, this is just in general, it's one thing to get up there and say, okay, this PowerPoint slide is... Mm -hmm the building and the building's made of brick and the placemaking is blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But it's another thing to go up there and really emote and yes. show that you have passion for this. And like, yeah. hey, you know, this building, we situated it on the property because of blah, blah, blah. And that's important because X, Y, Z. When you talk these presentations out loud mm-hmm. in advance, you'll learn that there are probably some dead spots in it, probably some things that aren't going to go over well. And that gives you Mm -hmm. time to correct it. And it also gives you time to get that emotion built up and and that passion. You know what I mean? Yes. Emotion is a key part in communication. Yeah, it is. It is. And I mean, what have you seen when you've pitched clients? I mean, have you seen the same thing? Um, so I wanted to add my point when you mentioned about emotional and practice speaking out loud. So I have been doing YouTube videos <laughs> for a while. Yeah. And then one thing that content creators do in YouTube videos is we have to edit and we watch our videos probably 50 times before it goes out to the public. And every time I notice that there's always some dead spots within the video that even myself, I'm not interested in watching the rest of my video. So I think that can be a practice as well. Just watching your own recording, listening to your own podcast recording or watching your own presentation and Zoom recording. I think that's a great practice too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, going back to the pitches or like the elevator pitches, you know, it sounds kind of like weird to practice this out loud, but Trust me, it helps because the more you do it, the more it just becomes like a part of you and the more you could just like pull it off. You know, you happen to run into somebody you weren't expecting to run into and you have to explain yourself. If you're very practiced with your pitch, you can do this and do it in a way that you don't come off like trying to be pushy or trying Mm -hmm. to be too salesy. Right. Mm -hmm. You have to find that balance. So practicing really helps that. Yes. So I think the next topic will be, you mentioned about Matra. Did you guys have any branding or how did you establish the brand to attract clients? Right. So that goes to establishing your credibility. So you're starting up a business, nobody's heard of you. Mm -hmm. And especially, you know, being young, I still face this and we faced it when we started up Mantra, there's that like reverse age discrimination. There's automatically that thinking that, well, you're young, Mm -hmm. you can't possibly have the experience or the know-how to Mm -hmm. successfully complete this. So I'll get to the branding and everything in a second, but, you know, whenever we went to meetings, whenever we would go to seminars, we would make sure that if everybody was wearing sport coats and collar shirts, well, we were wearing full suit and tie. 
it's just to combat that prejudice. Yeah. So being young and being in this mm-hmm. industry where there are a lot of established folks who have been doing this a long time, mm-hmm. you don't want to have them knock you because you're young. So don't give them an opportunity to do mm-hmm. that. So to go to branding, it's kind of the same mentality. If you're starting up a business, whether it's commercial real estate or, or any other thing, you really need to have and think about this. What is your logo? Are you going to have a secondary logo? What are your primary colors? Mm-hmm. Are you going to have secondary colors? What are your business cards going to look like? Mm-hmm. Just quick note with business cards. I think one area where you should spend money, get the thick cardstock business cards, get them embossed because mm-hmm. as you're handing these out, these are the things that people literally hold on to. So you want that to be reflective of you. All of that, the branding, the logo, the colors, your emails, your website. You really need to think about all of this when you're going to use the primary logos, when you're going to use the primary colors, when you're going to go to like the secondary stuff. What is your website going to look like? Because that's a reflection on you. What is your copy going to say on your Mm -hmm. website? And when you're corresponding with people, this is always an exercise in advertising your company Mm -hmm. and showing off your brand, whether it's Mm -hmm. an email or a letter or whatever. So you really need to be aware of how you're writing, the formality of it and not being like you would be talking to your friends on text message. Mm -hmm. Because all those things go into how people will perceive you and perceive your company. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we did at Mantra, we actually paid for a branding guy. You know, I don't think he had a company. He was just a graphic designer that was doing work on Uh the side. We had him help us with the logo and the colors and everything like that. And I think that was money well spent because you, mm-hmm. from the get-go, you really have to establish yes. the image of the company. It's super important. Mm-hmm. Yes. And when I started Creative Media, I've gone through this branding brainstorming and also in terms of social media I think branding on social media is also very important and this is something I don't see a lot of commercial real estate companies are doing they're great on business cards emails website presentations but when you go on their LinkedIn company page they have like two posts from seven months ago and I think it's also the context that you put out either in your marketing materials or on social media and all of the tone of voice of your brand, everything exactly. relates to branding. And after I started my own company, from a business owner's perspective, I constantly have to remind myself, if I post this, is it relevant to my brand? Is it going to benefit yeah. or hurt my brand? And I have to constantly reminding myself the branding, the image of my company. That's a great point because... I remember you saying in one of the previous podcasts, like as a business owner, for instance, your background is in finance, but when you start up your own company, all of a sudden you have to do salesmanship and you have to do all these other things that you weren't trained in and you have to be able to do it well from the get-go. And there really isn't a playbook for it. So as a business owner, you're right. You have to be aware of all these things. You can't just fall back into what we're classically trained in. Mm -hmm. 
you need to really do all this stuff well and really be aware of what your brand is and how you're getting that messaging out right from the get-go. That's maybe the most important thing. Mm -hmm. And after I got into commercial real estate, my mentor told me that there are two types of people that you need to be best friends with in commercial real estate or in business in general. Number one, CPAs. And number two, lawyers. It's very important to have a great lawyer. Um, I would agree. And, and not because I come from that background. So when we were doing mantra, I mean, obviously as a startup, you have limited funds and you have to use that efficiently. Mm-hmm. And being a lawyer in the beginning, I was like, okay, I'm going to do all the legal work, you know, from you know, writing out the contracts, the LOIs, the negotiating, et cetera, et cetera. And what I found was that doing everything isn't the most efficient mm-hmm. use of my time or the business or, or even our money, to be frank. I mean, mm-hmm. it's probably more efficient to go out and, yeah. and have a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And especially if your business is going to be in different states you should really have a lawyer in each state that you're working in because the laws are different. So when you're interviewing lawyers, I'm going to contradict myself now. I would recommend, you know, obviously find the best lawyer you can. My experience is the lawyers with the gray hair, the older lawyers who have more experience, definitely worth it. Um, Yes, there are, younger lawyers and they may seem more passionate, but my experience, and this is just limited to me, when we hired lawyers, the lawyers who were older and had, you know, 30, 40 years experience were always the better lawyers. Yeah. You know, I'll just chalk that up to, you know, they've probably been around longer and seen a lot more Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. Um, So to your point about the CPAs and the lawyers, yeah, absolutely. Um, that's one area that you shouldn't skimp in, for right. sure. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether I've told my audience about this, but I'm a member of the Las Vegas Clark County Bar Association. I'm a non-attorney <laughs> member. And being in the commercial real estate business, I I hope I don't get sued, but I think I will get sued one day for whatever reason. So it's always good to have a bunch of friends who are attorneys. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know if you have to worry per se about getting sued. And maybe this is another topic that, you know, when you're engaging with a client, make sure to write everything down and send out what I call confirmation emails. So dear so-and-so, great talking to you today. You know, please allow this email to confirm the following points. And then you take those points, you put it into a contract or, or whatever. And that way there's always a clear record of what everybody's expectations are. Yeah. And that way you lower the chances of being sued or conversely, if you have to sue the client for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. not only do you have the contract, but then you also have all of the emails and everything, um, not just before the contract was entered into, but during your engagement Mm -hmm. with the client, keep on sending out those confirmation emails so that you can show like, okay, I sent you this email and Mm -hmm. either you agreed to it or you didn't object to it Mm -hmm. or et cetera, et cetera. 
and this isn't legal advice. This is just general business advice. Right. You definitely have to write everything down and keep track of this. Yeah. Then let me say my disclaimer one more time so my <laughs> podcast doesn't get sued. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. We don't give out investment nor legal advice. Yes. Um, you sold your interest of mantra and now you're working at the city of Miami. And I'm sure from your student housing experience, you have a lot of work experience in public, private, real estate development and do you have some of the tips for commercial real estate professionals in dealing with these public-private partnerships? Sure. So going from Mantra, I was on one side of the table where I was pitching these public entities. And now I'm on the other side of the table where people pitch me and I represent the municipality. And I would just say, let me keep it broad here, mm-hmm. whether it was Mantra or at the city of Miami. When you're in commercial real estate and you are wanting to work with these public entities, Mm -hmm. when you're putting together your pro forma and you're line iteming Mm -hmm. the soft costs, always factor a few points higher than you normally would just because dealing with public entities, whether they're universities or municipalities or counties or whatever, Things happen at a slower pace. You may have higher legal fees because things are happening slower. So there's more hours being billed. Mm-hmm. I can say what I've seen at the city is that when a developer comes in and they want to partner with the city to develop something, regardless of what district that development may be in, it needs to benefit the city as a whole. Mm-hmm. So that may mean developing a park a few miles away in another district. It may mean contributing to street improvements a few miles away in another district. And so what one has to do is, again, know who your audience is. Who's the decision maker here? Is it a board? Is it one person? And what are those people expecting from this transaction? So you really need to meet with those people, find out what their expectations are, and to the best of your ability, account for them Mm because it is going to cost something, you know, whether it's time, whether it's an actual another development, you just have to really do your due diligence and, and focus on what are the decision makers expecting from this. So my experience at Mantra was... We were a Florida firm and we were doing business in all these different states from West Virginia, Kentucky, New York, where we really didn't have a presence. And from afar, we could do our due diligence and find out who are the decision makers, who's on the board, who are influencers. And we could try to learn what these folks were wanting out of the transaction But having gone through the process and now looking back on it, you really need to have that local person who has an into the organization do that work for you or do it with you. Because for whatever reason, if you're not from that locale, Mm -hmm. it's like a knock against you. So, I mean, you may have seen this. Um, If I could do one thing over, 
I would do that. I, I think yeah. that would be money well spent to have the lobbyist or that person go yeah. in on Mantra's behalf and yeah. explain the transaction. Right. Um, and, you know, the same thing, what I see regularly at the city, and you can probably find this out if you're dealing with public entities. Mm-hmm. If you watch, for instance, like planning and zoning mm-hmm. hearings or, or whatever, you'll start to see the same lawyers yeah. or folks over and over again. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to do business in a commercial real estate sense in different locales, really key in on those planning and zoning hearings or, or meetings and you know, call those folks up and find out how does business operate there. And it may be worth your while to hire them to advocate for you on your behalf. Mm-hmm. So. Yes. I really agree with you when you mentioned local person. That reminds me of the general partner position in commercial real estate, whether it's transactional development. It's so important to have that local expert with yeah. your project. And especially in smaller cities, I would say it's harder for out-of-state developers to get into smaller cities. You really need to know a lot of people in the local community. So how do you account for politics to influence a transaction? When you're dealing with a city or a county in a commercial real estate sense, the development really has to benefit the entity as a whole. It can't just benefit like that one block or that one district. So find out who those representatives of those different districts are and what they need to help make their district better. Mm -hmm. And also the flip side of that is dealing with the public. So if you're developing something on one block, what do the neighbors think about that? Are they against it? Are they for it? What are their reasons? How can you account for that? Mm -hmm. And having meetings with the neighbors and if you can get them on your side from the get-go, it goes such a long way than the opposite of having them be against you from the get-go and having to switch their opinion around. So you really need to do the due diligence, find out who the decision makers are, who are the influencers, and really find out what they're looking for from a transaction. And to the best of your ability, putting a valuation on that and accounting for it. Great. Thank you so much, Andrew. Anything else that you would like to add? I think that was great. The only thing else, I I think what you're doing is great. I I think you're going to have a lot of success. I agree. Social media in a commercial real estate sense, it's it's needed. As you do this more and more, the word is going to get out and you're going to look back a year from now and you're going to be like, oh, you know, I was only 20 podcasts in. Now I have 50,000 followers and, you know, I'm 100 podcasts in. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much for being my guest today. My pleasure. Once again, thank you so much, Andrew. To all of our listeners, please share this podcast on LinkedIn and help us to spread the words. Don't forget to follow Creative Media on LinkedIn and Instagram. Please tell your friends and colleagues to subscribe and leave a review, please. All of the links are in the show notes below. I really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you in the next episode.